0: Just so you yeah. know, so don't be saying anything ridiculous or, or do. Here's a chance to rebrand yourself if you want. <laughs> How's How life? Are you, man? I'm doing well, dude. Doing real well. Yeah, just hanging out here. How are you? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Just been Pick- super, super busy. In what way? Training, raising children.
1: Uh, I'm just starting just starting to train now. And we also moved up to Andorra. Just had to like had to do a bunch of shit, get a bunch of shit taken care of. Moving sucks. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. It was just we have had this place for a long time. We've had stuff in it, but they renov- We we just renovated it, and so we needed to get um, everything just assembled. Fair enough. Yeah.
0: So are you are you there full time now? Is like that's like is that your primary residence?
1: Yeah. This is, yeah, it's always like, we've always been residents here, uh, for like the last three years, but, uh, just with, uh, we weren't up here because of the renovation and because of COVID like I, and cause I broke my femur cause I broke my femur. We couldn't leave. Well, I, I wanted to stay in Spain, mm-hmm. uh, just because we have, I have a good, some good practitioners there and they were helping me out. And yeah, it was, and yeah, we don't, we don't, normally we go, we come up here in the summer cause it's a lot cooler too. And yeah, so it's at altitude. Like my place, my place is at two thousand meters.
0: It's oh, a bit no higher shit. up. Nice. Is yeah. it? Is it officially like the kingdom of Andorra? Yeah. And it and it's like it's like yeah. that big on the map.
1: It's it's a principality.
0: It's tiny, man. The end, but the, ru- the trail the trail running here and the
1: riding here is is quite good.
0: Well, I mean, if Instagram tells me anything, it does look like quite the uh, quite the place. It's super quiet right now. It looks nice, and dude, I miss. I'm. I i have not been to Europe in four years, and I miss it. I love Europe. Europe's pretty cool.
1: Although I'd prefer doing altitude in America. Yeah, if you go to Flag. I've never been to Flagstaff, but I've done. I've done a running camp in Albuquerque. Oh, nice. And and then I've done. I've done a lot of training camps in Netherlands, which is just above Boulder.
0: Yep. Yeah, I know where that is. Uh,
1: as well as. In uh, this place called Summerhaven, which is above Tucson. Okay.
0: Okay. In my mind,
1: in my mind, as a as a rider, to Summerhaven's the best place in the world to do altitude because you can train, you can live at eight thousand feet. Yeah. But then every morning you wake up, and then you can ride down this mountain, and you can be at two thousand feet in forty minutes riding. So it's like. You can do all of your intensity at, a, at a, a reasonable altitude without impacting the efforts. And then you just ride back up to the top. And That's it's like, it's, it's also American living. Like I like America for, <laughs> like when I'm training just full gas, I like being able to go to Trader Joe's. I like being able to go to Whole Foods.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, America's infrastructure is set up for convenience. So
1: it's, it's- so convenient. Whereas here
0: that we still haven't found a good grocery store.
1: Like we found some okay ones,
0: yeah, but
1: like you also feel really cornered in because like altitude in the states is always at a plateau,
0: yeah,
1: whereas here it's you're on the top of a mountain, yeah, so it's exactly like, like
0: that
1: yeah, you're just like there's there's cliff cliffs all around you, and it can get a bit depressing
0: <laughs> that's like Canada. But I, st- I still yeah. quite like it. Yeah. It's like, it's like Canada where people want to go to altitude and they'll go to like Canmore and like to get to the altitude, you're literally on top of the mountain. So it's like, well, you can yeah. put a t- treadmill up there and run or, you know, yeah. to get anywhere. It's crazy how good like Arizona is in general. Like Arizona, you think about, you think about desert and heat, but it's, it's got like between flag and that place outside Tucson. It's legit.
1: How have you been to flag?
0: I've, I've spent some time at flag. I, I, I trained, I trained in flag with Dylan before the Olympics and, uh, <laughs> In 2012, it was a long ass time ago.
1: Cool. I've but always wanted I, to
0: go. I went to school in Colorado, um, in Fort Collins, so I I love I did love. You,
1: did you like Fort Collins?
0: I loved Fort Collins. I really did. Yeah, yeah. I've re- I've
1: ridden into there from Boulder.
0: Yeah one one time I was I was dating a girl who lived in South Dakota and I tried to ride my bike from Fort Collins to a South Dakota. Dude, really? Riding through it was like it was like a woman's mountain bike because i didn't actually have a bike and uh yeah riding through wyoming which is like a high plain desert and the wind and shit out there it was awful did you make it um i hitchhiked several times yeah
1: really but you made yeah. it
0: but i made it i made it in a day i probably i'd probably put it in about a, i'd probably put in about like 130k of riding and then a whole lot of uh hitchhiking because- no way Oh, yeah, because, like, I was up, and I turned a corner, and all of a sudden, I just, like, I literally got hit by a wall of wind, and I couldn't, <laughs> yeah. I just, I just put dude, the bike, bike down a hitchhike.
1: Mountain bike is savage for a headwind, too, because you're just, like, so upright. You're just basically a sail.
0: Oh, dude. It's like, you, when you're going down a hill like that, and you're having to pedal hard, you know, you're screwed. Good story, yeah, oh, it was it was it was epic, man. Like the people I got picked up for, I got caught in like a hail storm and shit. Yeah, it used to be one of my really? it used to be one of my go tos.
1: That's a good story. That's cool.
0: Yeah, man. It was a uh, it was good times. Um today, we're just going to talk for the Mile to Marathon. I don't think a lot of it it'll be on our own channel, which would be great. Um and we'll kind of get to know the other co-founder because everyone knows D Dubs pretty well, obviously. So it'll be nice to chat with yeah. you about, about your running. Um And so we'll kind of talk about the mile because our next, our next virtual race is the mile Uh, trying to get people to, you know, go to their comfort zone a little bit and do an all out mile. Uh, So I I figure you are the one to speak on that given your background and, but you know, it'll kind of be a conversation and it can go in any direction. Um, And if there's anything off limits or whatever, we can always edit it out. But for the most part, it's just like this talk about running and it'll probably We'll probably touch upon cycling now because that's kind of a big part of your life um, and all that other good stuff. Is there anything in particular you'd like me to focus on or, or not focus on?
1: No, man. I'm going to open the door talk ask me anything. Wicked. Um, but yeah, no, I'm super keen to talk about the mile. Cool,
0: and I would also like to just talk about um, starting with Mild Marathon also because okay. I think you were the uh, the genesis of it all was you, and then uh, yeah. so thank you for doing that, by the way. It's been very, very fun.
1: You know, all, it actually was Ellie. It was Ellie? Yeah.
0: Ellie, Ellie started was, it all. The brain trust she, behind she, it all, eh?
1: Yeah, she, because she was like, you should coach, you should coach, and I was like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, and then finally, she like, she connected me with two guys that she worked with that were running and that she ran with. And she's like, coach these guys. And then she connected me with them and that's how I started coaching. And then uh, we started building it up and then uh, Dylan came, came into Ottawa. And I was like, man, let's, let's split it up.
0: Heck yeah. We'll see stuff like that. That's what we need to know. It'll be good. It'll be good. Perfect. righty. So I'm just going to do a quick little introduction and, and then we'll roll with it. All right, man. Okay. All right. Three. I'm sure you've done like a billion podcasts, so it's nothing new. All righty, three, two, one. Everybody, today we have a super special guest joining us from Andorra in the mountains, in the wilds of Europe. We got Mild Marathon, a founder, uh, Mike Woods. Mike Woods is currently known more for his cycling, but back in the day, this guy was one of Canada's finest runners. Uh, he was a miler, 3K. I'm sure he dabbled in the 800 a time or two. But yeah, so uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how's, uh, how's life in Andorra treating you?
1: Uh, it's good. We just got up here. The border just opened between Spain and Andorra. Prior to um, the border being open, we were allowed to come up, but we've would had to spend 15 days in quarantine if we came up. So that's why we we kind of delayed coming up here because we are residents here, but we wanted to, we wanted to, after doing quarantine in Spain, we didn't want to come up here and have to do another quarantine. So the border opened yesterday and we came on up and uh, it's been lovely. Sun's out, uh, nice weather. It's a lot cooler than uh, in Girona uh, where we were before. It was in the mid thirties down in Spain. And now it's like, you know, high of 20 here and nice cool nights and, but I'm feeling the altitude. We're at 2,000 meters right now.
0: Oh, are you? Um, So what does the quarantine look like in there? It's like like you can't leave your apartment or you can go and do solo rides. How strict is that?
1: Spain was uh, one of the most strict nations uh, in the world. We were locked down for seven weeks uh, where we weren't allowed leaving the house unless it was for essentials, groceries, that kind of stuff. Couldn't do any activity outside. Um, but for me, the timing was impeccable just because I broke my femur four days before the lockdown began and the first day I was cleared to ride outside was the first day that pros were allowed riding outside, uh, Spain let pro cyclists. If you had a professional license, you were allowed, uh, riding outside solo, uh, after seven weeks of the, the lockdown but it was, it was significant and Girona particularly where we were is a really uh, beautiful old medieval city, but uh, really touristic, like lots of tourists yeah, and lots of cyclists, a lot of cyclists, but everyone left. And so I would go out, I went out a couple times just to crutch around and do a blood test because uh, uh, we wanted to see where my, my blood values were at after, after the crash and well, I went uh went over and did a blood test and as I was crutching around, just looking around, saw nobody. And it was eerie because this yeah. normally at this time of the year it's popping off. There are people everywhere. Um, and it was just dead. Like uh really, really surreal experience going to, through these old streets uh with no one around. Uh so yeah, it was it was it was pretty strict and um uh, Made us really appreciate outdoor activity. Ellie was trying to, trying to go out for runs, but eventually she wasn't allowed to run outside. And so she was stuck in, inside the house as well. Ellie is my wife. And uh, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was, it, it was uh, not easy, but at the same time, it was also really nice because I was, I was home with Max, her little, yeah. little girl, and spending time with her and really just being forced to be on the couch and just hanging out with, with her, which I don't regret. <laughs>
0: First off, I appreciate you using the phrase "popping off" to describe Gerona. I like, I like, I like that. Um, but yeah, I mean that that timing is unbelievable. Uh, so you, you you crushed your femur uh, in a in a bike race, correct?
1: Yeah, I was doing Pyrenees, which is one of uh, the bigger week long stage races in the world. Uh, the one the one race, I, one of the races that I do that still scares me. It's a, it's a savage race. It's a lot of crashing, a lot of stress, um, and it was extra stressful because it was the only race going on in the world at that time uh, because of COVID-19. Uh, all the other like, races in Italy had been shut down. Races elsewhere had been shut down, but this was kind of like racing's last stand. Uh, ASO, which is the uh, organizing body of not just Paris-Nice, but the Tour de France, as well as the UCI, the governing body of cycling, really wanted this race to happen. So they pushed forward to have them. They went through all these extra measures. It was kind of like a behind closed doors bike race where there were no fans. It was really weird. It was a really weird race in that sense. And uh, on the fifth stage, I uh, came around a corner a bit too fast. Uh, ended up on the side of the road, uh, but wasn't able to, to uh, keep it upright. Uh, I, I hit a big culvert, flipped over, landed on my femur. And instantly I knew it, was, it wasn't going to be good. I... I uh, got a spiral fracture in the in the femur fortunately it was in a good place but uh yeah uh probably the most painful injury of my my career certainly the most painful injury of my career certainly the most painful moment of my life uh and uh also painful just because i started thinking of my big goals for the rest of the season uh Mm -hmm. the olympics the -hmm. world championships the tour all those i felt like when i when i was lying on the side of the road not not able to to move uh, I thought those were going to be compromised, and then all of a sudden, uh, lockdown happens, and now every all those races are still, still uh, possible for me.
0: Yeah, that must be a rather conflicting space to be in your mind, where you're kind of like selfish. You're like, sweet, like I just got a kind of a chance here, but at the same time, for all your peers and everyone, you're like, sorry guys, that's really really awful. But I guess it's it's a silver lining towards towards all that. And now you're, I mean, I can see you right now. You're walking around, you're upright, and the, the healing's done. You're back on your bike.
1: Yeah, uh, like really, yeah, super lucky in the sense of, like you mentioned, uh, just the timing of everything, but also the recovery has gone really well. I have a really good physiotherapist uh, who is working with me quite regularly, probably five, six times per week. And just murdering me like he was flexing my my knee as much as he possibly could. Um, Yeah, just making sure I could get moving again. And uh, all that resulted in me making a really quick recovery. I think at the six-week mark, I was starting to able to uh, not quite uh, walk, but get close to walking. And uh, then at, yeah, seven-week mark, I was able to ride outside.
0: Oh, wicked. And so do, do you do any running in your cross training? Or is that too high yeah. impact?
1: Yeah. Um, I love running. I, mi- I miss it. Uh, I miss being the simplicity of it. I miss um, the sensation you get when you're really fit running. Yeah. Uh, and I've really noticed that in the last year or two. Um, and so I've been trying to you know, sneak runs in in my training. Uh, it's a bit difficult be- on, on some weeks just because we're, we're, I do a lot of hours on the bike. I'm, I get in often 30, 35 hours per week on the bike, and then you're kind of tired. But uh, when I'm on the lower mileage weeks, partic- and particularly in the off season, I try and I try and run a lot, uh, especially because the amount I'm riding as a cyclist I find really makes you a bad human being. It makes you better, like it makes you a better rider, but a, a worse human being. Because I, I don't get any impact if I'm racing full time. When I'm racing, when I do a Grand Tour, for example, like the Tour de France. I'll literally walk maybe five kilometers over the course of a month, like cumulatively. So, because uh, everything in cycling is all about taking as much rest as possible. Everyone's always telling yeah. you, you need to rest. You need to rest. You, if you're not, if you're standing, you should be sitting. If you're sitting, you should be lying down. And <laughs> we were like, if you, if a director sees you going up and down stairs, he loses it. If, uh, the team sees you walking around outside afterwards, they're, they're not going to be super happy. So uh, between the training camp pre-tour and then the actual active racing tour, you literally, it's probably five kilometers over the course of the month. And that's like just from walking from the bus to the bike, walking from the your room to the, the, uh, the dinner table. And then that's it. So that and I, I really think that that's not good for your body. I think that um it's the body needs impact the body's meant to walk it's meant to run and so yeah. i try and make up for those periods where i'm just completely neglecting that impact in the off season particularly where i where I'll, I'll sneak those runs in and actually try and get the mileage back up
0: yeah that's that's it's insane this the specificity of athletes and how it's gone so like you are the king of this one area but anything else it's you're it's it's you're kind of useless what do you think your vert would be
1: Oh, it's terrible. By the end of my, by the end of my each season, I am an exceptional cyclist, but I am a crap human being. Like <laughs> everything, like my core is crap. Like I'm like a wet noodle. Like I, am weak, and my upper body's so weak. It's yep. so weak. I get so emaciated in my upper body. I look terrible, but my legs, my legs look great, and like they're very good at. Turning a pedal, and that's it. Like lateral motion, forget it. Running, forget it. But like, just those that act of turning a pedal, I'm very good at.
0: Yeah. So there's no there's no strength training. I mean, I guess yeah, because if you're spending 35 hours on the bike, there's really not much time for anything else.
1: Yeah. I think I uh, every year I try and I make it. I I say to myself, okay, this is the year where you're going to run on a regular basis through the season. This is the year where you're going to do all the core work on a regular basis throughout the season. Uh, But at some point, typically after once I hit like kind of a grand tour that I start to neglect it. I think uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think the biggest reason, which uh, I've really noticed in uh, during this quarantine is testosterone. Like because Mm -hmm. I'm just doing so many hours on the bike, you really uh, suppress your testosterone levels. You just get more and more fatigued. And testosterone is not just like the root of sexual desire, but all desire. I get so much more apathetic. So I'm just tired, and I just don't want to do anything else. I yeah. just like I'm completely content with like lying around and doing nothing. And normally that's not me. Like when I'm fresh, when I have time off, I'm just bouncing off the walls. I want to do. I want to take on the world. I have all these ambitions. I want. I want to be part of companies. I want to. Uh, yeah, do everything. And mid-season. Particularly mid training camp or mid race, uh, I'm completely content with just lying on the couch and watching Netflix for hours.
0: Uh, I'm the same way. I remember when I used to be hard into training for running; it'd be the exact same thing, right? Because like you're so driven in this one area, and people kind of think like that just that's everything. It's like, you're just a driven individual. It's like, if it's not in regards to running, I'm not driven at all. Like I just, I just want to do nothing. Right. I'm, I'm okay just yeah. doing nothing and, and resting. You just, cause hey, it's resting. it as resting. So if you yeah. were, so after a grand tour or after you're super fit on a bike, if you were to take three days, recover or whatever, and you were to go blast a mile, how fast do you think you could run a, bl- a mile all out off, off your premier bike fitness?
1: I don't think I'd make it. <laughs> I'm dead. I'm dead serious.
0: Well, I could if I so
1: like if I wrote if I paid if I probably say uh, like not aerobically. I'm fitter than I was when I ran sub four. Yeah, I like I'm completely capable of after a Grand Tour of running probably the best. Like the, especially the past couple of Grand Tours, I, I'm probably completely capable of running like personal best times from a cardiovascular perspective but i don't know if if i tried to go that pace yeah i don't know if i'd last it last more than 600 meters like i think my Achilles would be up my ass like it would just be like <laughs> it just snap like yeah it would just snap everything would everything would come apart uh, uh particularly from a muscle and tendon perspective just that i don't have that impact adaptation yeah yeah I, like this off season I went to a model marathon practice, and one of the first ones I went to, I got caught up goofing around uh, with a guy doing – with Garrett DeJong, one of our, our coaches. He was running K repeats at 330s, uh, 2K repeats at 330 pace. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And so I got like, copped in. We were running together, and, like, I felt great. It just felt so easy, effortless. But then all of a sudden, like, literally within 200 years of finishing the uh, – 200 years before I finished the effort, I just felt my path go – oh
0: uh, yep and, uh, and,
1: and that was it that was it for the off season no more <laughs> running from Mike.
0: <laughs> dude I, I see it all the time it's especially like we have a lot of triathletes that we coach right and it's the same yeah. thing where they do a lot of swimming and biking so it's so low impact but highly aerobic highly, high, like the, so they're cardiovascularly like ready to go but it's like running impact is so like you got to pump the brakes on them so hard cause they can handle it. And it's, it's like, you can't, you can't run that much. You're going to, you're going to have some sort of soft tissue or some sort of tendon or ligament damage because you're just not used to that. Impact. Totally.
1: It's a huge it's a problem for me, particularly, even though like I know that I know the situation, but it's a problem for all cyclists that I know that try to get into running. Uh, I've talked to so many of them, helped, helped out a few trying to get into running. And it's like, I just tell them whatever feels uh too slow is not slow enough for you like you're gonna have you have like some of these guys that i'm i'm training with have the engines of a sub two ten marathoner like they have they're that cardiovascularly gifted but if they ran anything faster than five minute case they would destroy themselves so it's like i I, like tell them like put the governor on and you can only run like as terrible as it sounds 10 maybe 15 minutes at most the first run. And you've got to add, you know, just a very small percentage each week until like over seven, This is like, it's going to take you several months before your. I'd even say close to six months before your, your, your uh, musculoskeletal system starts catching up to your cardiovascular system.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah, running is, it just, it destroys <laughs> your body. That's why you can only do, you know, when you're even the highest level runners, like you can run two hours a day. And, you know, then you, this is
1: actually one of the discoveries I had too late in my running career was that when I was a a runner, you are like, especially running the mile, you really like, and, and you know that, you know, this just as well as I did being a a runner at it, at their peak in the early 2000s, particularly in the miles, all about speed. You're always running fast. I was running, I never ran slower than six minute miles. And when I was running. Um, because I was never running slower than six-minute miles, I was really limited on how much aerobic work I could actually do. I wasn't—I was only—you know—a big week for me would be—you know—ten-hour week of mm-hmm. running. That, that'd be a huge. Now on the bike, I'm doing—you know—over thirty hours a week, and cardiovascularly, you can handle that. And when I was injured for the first time, I, this is when I started riding. And I was, I was riding over the summer of 2007, pre, uh, like over the summer. And I started doing rides that were much longer than just an hour, hour and a half run, which was like my longest run was two hours. Yeah. And I was doing like going off for these long, long rides, three, four, even five hours in some instances. And I came back into cross country season that year and I was flying. I ran like, I ran 23, 23, sub 2320 for AK cross at pre-nats, I was like, dude, I was rolling and I I had no intent. I I didn't do any intensity. It was just, I was coming off this massive base that I built aerobically. And like this light bulb went off in my head realizing that, man, I could be doing so much more aerobic work through cross trading or aqua jogging or being on the underwater treadmill. Uh, And uh, unfortunately I learned that lesson too late. My foot was already kind of ruined. Uh, I hadn't fully recovered from my navicular stress fracture. And I I would later fully fracture the bone uh, in that season.
0: Yeah. So do you, do you have, I mean, I've heard a lot, like there's a convergence, like this much on the bike is equivalent to this much on the run. Or is that just kind of like a moot point? It's like, it's not even comparable in terms of like, you know, it's like impact because I've heard like, you know, if you want to, if you want to get the equivalent of, a, of an hour run, you got to go for a three hour bike ride or anything like that. Have you heard any sort of conversions or. or-
1: yeah. I've, I've totally heard that. Um, yeah. It's like, it's a really difficult thing to do. Like, no, there's it, so many yeah. very- yeah, there's so exactly. many variables. Like when I hear that, like I think, I mean, in a vacuum maybe. But yeah. like, the thing with, I, I do think there's significant, uh, a significantly more, uh, caloric burden, like a uh, caloric burden on the body, post run, uh, like that maybe that hour to three hour ratio does work because from uh, a recovery perspective post run, you're dealing with so much more uh impact adaptation healing um as opposed to getting off a bike after an hour uh even if you go full gas for an hour on the bike you still don't have that impact Mm -hmm. and therefore um there's less of a caloric demand on you post post uh one hour ride versus one hour running ride however like i mean you can uh, an elite level runner can run super easy for an hour and then go on a bike and ride super hard for an hour and it's going to be an equivalent burden. So it's yeah. just like, there's, there are so many variables. It's really hard to say. Uh, however, I do really miss, uh, I miss uh, and I, this is why I'll get back into running. Certainly when I'm done cycling is it as far, it is often far more efficient in terms of just staying fit. You, you could never really get truly fit by riding an hour every day. Uh, whereas if you ran an hour every day, you'd be, you can be as fit as a fiddle.
0: Yeah. And that's why it's, it's, it's bang for your buck. Right. It's absolutely. If you, if you only, if you only have half an hour, just go for a half hour run type thing. Cause a half hour bike ride, it's not going to do a whole lot. Yeah. Otherwise. And, <laughs>
1: it, it, and it's overwhelming with training. Cause like, like on Saturday, I did a seven hour ride and that's like, this is just a big time suck. Like yeah. you don't have a day after that. It's it. Yeah. You finish seven hour ride. It always takes you. Like if you're riding that long, you're at least out on, outside for eight hours. And then the prep before and the prep hour after, you know, it's, uh, I, I really miss the beauty of just like waking up in the morning and having a coffee, no, like pre-race plan, the pre pre-fueling regime or anything like that, just coffee, boom, hour and a half, come yeah. back home. You're good. You're good for the rest of the day. Uh, that, that you don't have in cycling. It's like the prep, the, the meal planning, everything. It's, it's a big time suck.
0: Just the mental like, they're having to mentally do seven hours of activity a day. It's just, like, do you, I mean, obvi- like, what do you do to pass the time? Do you, do you listen to music? Do you?
1: Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. That's one thing I do. It's not the actual. The, I actually really enjoy it, especially, like, whenever my coach puts a big ride in, seven, eight hours, I get really excited. Because nice. I'll, I'll, what I do is I just try and explore. I yeah. always try and find, like, I'll go in Strava. I'll do a lot of mapping. Um, and I'll try and go somewhere I haven't been. And that act is, is amazing. And I think, um, runners often can't relate to this as much, like run it. You get a high from that level of that distance of effort. Uh, you come back and it's such, you experience such a calm where you're so content. Like you're just like, it's a big sink. It's almost like it's the equivalent of having that first beer after working
0: yeah you know, it's yeah. like just
1: like oh this feels really good whereas like the runner high i find is a lot more full body and you're just like super g'd up to take on the day and you're like yeah you, like you see it at our practices you know to practices and everyone's buzzing afterwards they're like they're just like it's a like full body like excitement energetic high yeah. with the, the it's like you do these seven eight hour rides and they're really meditative and you come out of them just super zen and chill and you're it's nice
0: I love that. I love that. I love the the combination between the mental or the physical. I mean, yeah, the mental and the physical balance between the exercises and being able to just kind of lock in mentally and let the body take control or vice versa. How long does it take you to fix a flat these days?
1: I'm pretty quick. One of the reasons why I'm quick too, is when I started riding, I really made an effort to learn the bike. And so I actually started working at a bike shop. And when I was working at a bike shop, I got uh harassed constantly by the staff because i was terrible mechanically and but eventually like figured out how to do it pretty fast and now yeah i can do uh like i wouldn't say a minute but pretty
0: quick nice all righty let's let's talk a little bit about running mike obviously you know it's, it's your transition from runner to cyclist has been well documented and it's a fantastic story uh let's explore a little bit about you know young mike uh ottawa lion's I remember you were, you were quite a quick runner because I was also from Ontario. You are a few years younger than me, but I think you probably would have whooped me as a, as a, when you were younger also. Uh, how did you first um, get into running as, 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 a, younger, as a younger lad?
1: Uh, I played a lot of hockey, but uh, I always uh, had a good cardiovascular system, did well at the beep test at school, was always like, on the penalty kill in hockey. And, like, they just keep me on the ice for the entire yeah. time. Yeah. And when I played soccer, I was a midfielder and we just run the entire game. Like, I'm sure you went through it, as most uh, elite runners do. It's like you can't – like, you're not the greatest at any of the sports that you do, but you always can just outlast everybody. Yeah. And that, that, that was the case with me. And we didn't have a cross-country program at my high school uh, the first year. So I didn't run cross-country, but I did track. And the first practice I showed up to was a week before the first race. And I showed up in like, you know, basketball. Oh, I was like tennis shoes and basketball shorts and like some giant, like I think it was even a collared cotton tee. Like it was not, it was not moisture wicking. That's for sure. <laughs> it was my, they're, my so- they're, they're my soccer shorts. That's one of my soccer shorts I think was. And there's no tryout. Like I was the only guy who like, who's in ninth grade that was keen to run 3K. And so I just, like, I ran 3K that day. I, I think I was, it was just under 12 minutes. And then I, I did this meet the next week, and, and actually, like, then I had competition, and I won it. And the coach that was coaching at the time was, like, like he saw me the first day because I showed up at his practice in rollerblades. He was like, who the heck is this kid? Like, you know, <laughs> like a rollerblade to practice. And uh, But, yeah, I, I won. It was, the, it was, like, the the sectional meet in the city. And... The next one I won again in the, the city-wide and I qualified for uh, Eastern Ontario's and there came fourth, but I just, I just qualified for OFSA. and at OFSA, like it was just this game changing moment. Like I showed up, I was the first time I really got to leave uh, like go somewhere else without my parents. There were nine, cause there's grade 13 at the time. There were 19 year old girls in the bus you know <laughs> Oh yeah, what what year where was off
0: that year?
1: It was in Etobicoke. You were I'm pretty sure you were
0: there. Oh yeah, I got knocked. I think I got knocked out of the steeple chase in the first round because I would have been in twelve. Uh, I think I was in twelfth grade. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was tough in the senior category with the grade thirteens. <laughs> and so I showed I showed up there and like just had the time of my life in Etobicoke. Like uh, I, I I had a roommate, I ate fast food every night, like uh, just good looking girls everything it was it was just great and like i ended up running 940 i think in the 3k because it's the first time i had spikes my buddy lent me some spikes because he was running earlier in the he, ran, he was only running the 1500 so i got the spikes for the 3k and that's what, like I, I knew like I, I just fell in love with the sport i fell in love with like just chatting with everybody at the meet looking at the results sheets seeing kevin Sullivan everywhere and thinking man i want to beat that guy you know just <laughs> like like all those things uh like the the records, all that kind of stuff. And uh, after that, in Ottawa, particularly uh, of all places, um, Ottawa Lions were so, so, so were such a strong club. There was one other club at the time, but they were so small. They were the club. Um, re- I think they're relative to other cities. Uh, their their club was uh, like most other cities that have around a million people have multiple clubs. This was yeah. like the only club.
0: Yeah, in, it's interesting uh, in
1: Ottawa yeah and so therefore they had such a strong program and uh everyone that had off uh, seemed to be that was from the Ottawa area seemed to be running with the line so i just signed up started with practicing with the girls and then worked my way up to the, the high school boys group and yeah next year next year i won i won off and cross country
0: oh, uh, i was also
1: i also benefited of being from being a w midget so i was my second Although I was in grade 10, I was racing against a lot of grade nines. But uh, the double yeah, midget,
0: that was, that was a, a, a hack. Definitely an off yeah, the hack. total hack.
1: And actually, like totally, uh, like if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, yep. uh, he talks a lot about, you know, the age uh, thing in, in hockey where most guys are born in January, February, and March. It almost works reverse for, for kids who run because if you're born after September 1st, you get to go back a year. Uh, and race the midgets again. And I don't know if I would have been as successful in running had I not had the double year because all of a sudden, I, I went through puberty super early. I was a man amongst boys pretty much by being a double year midget. And I just started winning uh, at, at, at a much higher level. Like, you, you know, as well as I do, if you win off, so it's like, you might as well have won Olympic gold. And 100%. So, yeah. Like, I, I, and having won that, uh, it just got the momentum going. I trained so much harder because I knew an officer gold was on the line. I, I worked so much harder. I, uh, I invested myself so much more in the sport. And, uh, yeah, it, snow- it really snowballed from, from that year. It just kept on getting better and better. Got connected with a great coach in Ottawa. I was really lucky. He came on uh, um, halfway uh, through my high school career with his guy named Ian Clark. Uh, uh, he actually still has the Canadian junior record in the indoor 3000 years. He finished fourth in cross country at the world junior championships and went to university of Berkeley on a full scholarship Uh, trained under Brian, Brian Maxwell uh, the guy who started power bar and just really a really interesting guy. And he got running, he got me, um, became uh, uh, a second father figure behind my dad, obviously. And uh, yeah, we we just had so many times where we just uh, we talked training, and he was just a great coach and brought me through really well, trained me hard, but never overtrained me. I was never injured in high school, and uh, managed to get a full scholarship at the University of Michigan because, mainly because of him.
0: So when you're when you're in high school and you're starting to get that that taste success success in running, so the drive, how much of that is internal, of like I want to push myself, but also there's that external like yeah, you win off. So you're the big dog, right? You get this, you get this notoriety, you get, you know, maybe totally talk to the girls more, or whatever. Like, so how's <laughs> like, that balance? Cause I, I mean, I like, especially as a child, as a kid, like you're trying to like find your identity. So it's nice to be like, Hey, this is something I have. So I'm going to lean into it type thing versus like, I just want to see how fast I can get. What's, where was the balance with that?
1: Oh, uh, it's probably, it's probably more external than internal. It was, I, I, I'd actually put it 50, 50, but like with what one couldn't have existed without the other. Yeah, And as you mentioned too, it, it would ultimately lead to my downfall because my identity was so attached to running. But uh, I was really, I really did want to impress girls. I wanted to impress other people.
0: Absolutely.
1: Uh, you know, uh, it's certainly vain. Uh, but also I did love the fact that, I, especially coming from a lot of team sports, I love the fact that if I worked hard, if I pushed myself, if I trained hard, I would get better and I would see the fruits of those labors and my like 16, 17, 18 year old self in many ways was probably the most motivational person you'd ever meet. I'd climb up onto my bed at the start of every season and I'd write my goals, my time goals on my ceiling. So that every morning when I woke up, I'd see those goals. And everyone more every night when I went to bed, I'd see those goals and I'd try and get one step closer to them. And uh, it was an amazing moment. My lap, my, high my senior year my my in grade 12 uh i ran 342 in uh at worlds and which was like i didn't run sub four which is another story i i I won't go to that one but i I felt (laughs) like i was i felt like i was ready to go sub four because i i actually flew out to to vancouver to do uh a mile um and in the elite mile I was supposed to be the the top Canadian high schooler against the top American high school racing against Galen Rupp. Galen okay. Rupp was going to be there and uh, 13 guys in the field went sub four that day but Galen pulled out and because he pulled out the meet director put me in the B heat
0: oh, and man. I ran oh,
1: yeah and I ran 403 solo and like with nobody in the wind and it was like worse conditions and everything and I know for like that's one of my it still pisses me off today I know if. I know I was ready to go sub four. And then three weeks later in Italy, I ran a three forty two, which is like a sub four minute equivalent. Dude, but that I is, came back. That's bullshit. It is bullshit. And I came back afterwards after that race. And uh, my dad was so pumped. He's like, I, I can't believe you. Do you believe you could run that fast? And I pulled him up, like, Come over here. And I pulled him over to my room, pointed up at the ceiling and I wrote three forty two on the ceiling. Uh, it was it was cool. It was really cool.
0: And then dad's like, "Why are you writing on the wall?" What the heck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, that's, that's 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 really annoying about that 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 Vancouver experience. But hey, what can you do? You would eventually go on and run sub four. Spoiler alert.
1: In in some in some ways, it was a blessing in the size because I, I I would have been the third youngest to have ever done it because I was seventeen. Jesus. But had I done that, I'm confident the pressure that would have been on me going into my freshman year at university would have been so significant that I probably may have crumbled even earlier.
0: Okay. So tell me about the, um, you know, obviously you went to university of Michigan, which is, I mean, obviously Sully went there, Nate Brennan, Andrew Ellerton, Scotty McDonald. It's got such a Canadian connection uh, in your decision during your senior year of high school, like was, was Michigan kind of in the bag, or did you have other you know options?
1: Yeah, I went on to to a couple recruiting trips, but I remember I went to Arizona State on a recruiting trip, and as I was flying back, I was reading Sub Four okay. with uh, yep. the book about Webb and Nate, yep. and then like you read that like that's all I needed. Like yep. Michigan, that was actually my worst recruiting trip. The weather wasn't great, the school like the party there the party scene didn't look that cool. <laughs> um, everyone was so into running and not like doing other fun things. Like I went to Villanova for a internship and it was a blast, but like, I just was so enamored with this idea that I was going to be one of the greatest milers. And so I had to go to Michigan because that's where Kevin Sullivan, the greatest miler in Canadian history went. That's where Alan Webb went for his freshman year. That's where Nate Brandon was going. That's where Nick Willis, mm-hmm. uh, the guy who would go on to come second at the Olympics uh, was, was. And so that's where I felt like I had to go uh, in order to be great. Uh, and it was, uh, yeah, at the time it was the best miling school in the country. Now it's changed and, like Oregon's obviously way up there and there are a couple other schools that are better, that, that are better in, in some instances. But, um, at that time it was kind of like the bee's knees for, for miling.
0: Dude, the, the NCAA in general has just it's gotten so fast. It's like, you, you, you got to run three fifty eight to qualify for indoor nationals now in the NCAA it's absurd. yeah it's,
1: it's improved significantly because i ran 357 my sophomore year indoors and i had i had the fastest time in the nation all the way until the meet whereas uh now it's like if you're not running the fastest guy is running 352 to 354 at the slowest
0: yeah these guys are ridiculous so you know you, yeah. you go to you go to university uh obviously you're, you're in ann arbor uh What's what's the transition like from high school phenom to kind of now you're just you know you're you're no longer the big dog you're obviously you have great credentials how was that transition?
1: It was it was in many ways great in many ways tough I loved it like I loved going there I liked being a part of the school I liked the sporting tradition I liked uh, I, I I liked how high of a level it was. And I could see where I needed to be in watching Nate, Brandon, train, watching Nick Willis train. Uh, but also um, I was just so young. Like I started university at 17 because I had a late birthday. So did,
0: did you do four years of high school or five years of high school?
1: Yeah, just – yeah, four years because I was the first year.
0: of oh, the cohort. No, yeah. grade 13. Yep. Yeah.
1: So I uh, – yeah, I showed up and I, I, I was just so – uh, focused on running, and so uh, uh, into the sport that I had no uh, no outlets, and uh, I made a lot of mistakes because that like my value as a person was so attached to to running, and so if I was running well, I felt like I was the man. But if mm-hmm. I was running poorly, I would I would felt I felt like I was a bad person. Yep. and it resulted in me overtraining. Neglecting injuries, not paying attention properly to health and wellness, uh, all of the, and then also um, getting getting caught up to and and just trying to be the best in every workout. Like so, just uh, yeah, it was a recipe for disaster, and it ultimately uh, resulted in an injury. And I'm I mainly to blame for that. But I, we also had bad guidance at the time. Ron Worlhurst was my coach at the time, and he he was a, a, a a really celebrated coach and he had a lot of accolades and coached Kevin solve and coached all these great guys. But, uh, he wasn't, he was an extremely good motivator, but he wasn't great at holding people back. And, uh, uh, he didn't hold me back. And then I, there's no way I should have had, I should have had a navicular stress fracture. When I hear about navicular stress fractures now, it's a real failure, especially, uh, with
0: the biomechanics, the,
1: the, the physical abilities that I had It was a real failure on, not just my part but on, on his part.
0: Yeah, there's there's warning signs, right? They just don't they just don't happen out of the blue.
1: Oh there, there was like especially with navicular, but any stress fracture in general, there are like stress fractures are not a product of of one thing, one singular thing. Yeah, it's not there, a there's, yeah, there and if you're an NCAA coach at one of the best institutions, you should be able to keep your eye on these things. And my diet was terrible. I Pre C and leading into like a key race, I just eat, I, I just focus on eating 900 calories a day. And so I'd, I'd buy a TV dinner because I knew it was 300 calories, and that's what was my dinner. Like, I wasn't thinking about nutritional value, I wasn't thinking of uh, I, I, I wasn't thinking about how I, I need what I need to recover, I wasn't hydrating properly, i wasn't getting nearly enough, you know, enough vitamin D or calcium, particularly vitamin D in a place like Michigan where there's uh, no sun in the winter. Um, and then yeah, like always running in one direction on a flat indoor track uh, in spikes, but then not doing any transitional footwork uh, from where you're doing all of your basic miles in a big, heavy trainer. Uh, there are so many things that, that, that weren't controlled properly that knowing what I know now, having the integrated support team that I have around me now uh, would not have happened uh, if that was the case uh, when I was you know, 17, 18, 19.
0: Yeah, and that's so frustrating looking back, right? Because it's – it's especially with, like, the diet things because so many times in this sport we were talking about it with, with Dylan a little bit the other day. It's just, like, it's it's you, – you're there at practice for two hours and then you're kind of just on your own, right? Even the athletic trainers. A lot of times they're student athletic trainers. So the support squad of, like, the NCAA, which is regarded as, like, the highest in sports yeah. performance for university, a lot of the times it's, like, the kids are kind of left to their own devices and that can be tremendous. And that's why there's such burnout and there's such, you know, the attrition and sometimes like, well, you know, the strong survive type thing. It's like, well, that's also bullshit because that's a cop out from the systematic side of things Yeah, and not providing the support.
1: It's it's interesting because they let you on, on, like, let you go, and do your own things, So in so many ways, but not in other ways, like you had to report in for study hall, your freshman year, you know, you have to do all these things that, that are super controlling, uh, but where, where things that really matter, uh, they aren't. And you mentioned even trainers, like the, the whole trainer situation in the States in uh, school university sports is ridiculous. Like these people are, uh, the way the undergraduate system works in America is that you have, Uh, you don't declare until your third year Mm -hmm. and you can get an undergraduate degree in athletic training. So that means you really only spend a year of athletic therapy training in your undergrad and you get this degree and it's effectively a degree in how to do good tape jobs because their, their their whole job is just is less oriented around rehabilitation prevention, which is what's most important to running and more oriented about how can I keep this athlete on the field? which makes sense in a football game, which makes sense in a basketball game. But you can't, if you're already injured and running, you shouldn't be running. Yeah. Like there's no, like, let's tape it up and running. But that's what they literally would do. There were times where my, when before I I had the navicular fracture where they just taped me up so my ankle couldn't move. And like, you're like, (laughs) how is this, what's what? like, this is only going to create more. This is like going to only create more problems.
0: Uh, it's so it was, uncomfortable. Uh, they did the same thing at my university. Tape like taping your foot and going for a run. That you will have the worst run of your life. It's just like worst run. That's, this is it not how my sense. body's supposed to move. I'm not looking to pivot. Yeah. I'm not juking anybody. I'm trying to run and yeah. like your your circulation's garbage. You're, there's no movement and it just hurts. So I, I remember, yeah, I remember having so many runs and even, just even stop and tear Even it if it
1: prevents, even if it prevents the pain in the one area that you're feeling the asymmetrical damage that you're going to do to something else yeah. is going to leave you in like, if you make it through that run, you're probably going to do like, you're going to probably do damage to an Achilles, a calf, some, something's
0: going to go on off with your hip. Oh, it was, it was hilarious when I think back at it now. Oh dude, I was, I was running maybe 70 miles a week in university and I was hurt all the time, all the yeah. time I was hurt. And then when I, when I graduated and moved and started having like regular massage, Proper physiotherapy. I was rarely hurt in my professional career when I was running 120, 130 miles a week. Yeah. It just shows how much more and how much more important things there are to actually taking care of your body in the right way versus yeah, just like being reactive and throwing some tape on it. Type thing. So obviously, yeah, like so you started developing these foot injuries and they kind of became recurring with your with your stress fractures. Um, so what was this transition as you were going through? these injuries and you're having your identity as a runner you know you have the ability to be an excellent runner but you're trying to hold on what is that process like as you're finding yourself as a human but also dealing with these struggles as an athlete like obviously it's very challenging to go through this um you know your last couple years university into your post-collegiate career uh you know where was your where was your focus at as an athlete then
1: um at first it was super challenging and it just got more and more depressing. Uh, like it felt like every level I dropped, I couldn't go lower and I will, and I would like, it just went from first being like, Oh, I got this, this sore foot. Maybe I'll sit out this race to like being like, there's the season. Then maybe I'll redshirt this. Then all of a sudden not being able to run surgery. Uh, and." Me getting more and more depressed, but I was lucky in the sense that I did start focusing on school a bit more in my last year, and started meeting a couple of people that were outside of running. And I started kind of seeing glimpses that, like, outside of running, nobody really cares. Yeah, nobody really cares how fast you are. But when you're inside running, and and all your your teammate, you live with four teammates, and all the parties you go to are with runners. You think everybody matters. Everybody cares. Everyone's has a microscope on how fast you ran your workout yesterday. So finally I started seeing glimpses of that. Then I went back home to Canada uh, and kept on trying to keep the dream alive. Went to Albuquerque. did altitude, did some altitude camps there. Tried to try. I kept, kept trying to run all the way until 2009, but from 2009, And eight, when I graduated till 2011, I only managed to run four races after that. It was just, I'd get, start getting there and then then the navicular would go again. Um, And it got to a point where I I developed a vascular necrosis in the bone. So it just wouldn't, wouldn't heal. It was effectively dead. I had two pins in there and it, it, it it kind of, uh, yeah, it was, uh, not going to get back to normal. Not I I could all I could I was still able to run on it, by by 2011 I was still able to run on it. I could run 100 mile weeks, but uh, the minute I tied up in an like a hard miler style effort anaerobically, the chain would come apart. Like my my uh Achilles would start pulling on my Plantar Fascia, plantar Fascia would pull on the cuneiformis and the cuneiformis and the talus would kind of smash the navicular, they'd sandwich it and it just like it would go. And it always bro- like I broke it a couple times. It's it's the right? Yeah. Yeah. So gradually like but in that period, as I was starting to realize the dream was dying, I started also enjoying my life a lot more and having fun with with people outside of running. Uh I had by that point I was in a really strong relationship with Ellie, my, my now wife. Uh, we were like, I was working, I was working crap jobs, but uh, oh, in know. many ways, many many ways I was like a manager at a running room uh, in many ways, like not happy with the tra- trajectory of my, my life, but also uh, being coming content with not being a runner and, and also being realizing again, like I mentioned earlier that, nobody really cares. Like yeah. it's like no one really cares how fast you run. And it was great that I went through that because I finally started riding just to stay fit. Cause I was starting to get a bit overweight, uh, started riding and started enjoying the process of just going out and not being injured, uh, mm-hmm. not suffering, uh, not having any, any niggles, any, any issues with an Achilles or, or my navicular. And started doing some group race, like local group races and uh those races gave me like tickled that itch tickled that competitive itch and that's how i got into racing that's how i got into cycling but because of all the crap that i went through earlier it made me come into a sport with a much different perspective yeah and that perspective i'm confident is the reason why i'm still racing today like i don't i don't attach my values as a person to how fast i run I attach it, my value, my value as a person is completely attached to uh, how good I am as a, as a husband, how good is I'm a, as a dad, how good is I'm a, as a friend. And so it's, it's, and it, it, it's, it's liberating. You, you ride so much better because of that.
0: Oh, it's, it's refreshing to have that balance and be able to identify those, those things that really matter. And yeah, as a young athlete, it's, it's really hard to separate that. So looking back on your running career, I just want to take a step back here real quick. If you had one race that really sticks out in your mind, what would you what would you define as your your finest performance as a runner?
1: Uh, I mean the first time I went sub four was probably it's, it's first time I went sub four was probably the best one. I I was flying. I was in good form. I broke three, the three k Canadian Junior record a couple weeks earlier. Uh, I just. I had that moment that I occasionally I get now on a regular basis on the bike where uh, you're just running and you can run so fast indefinitely. Like I could just run 60 seconds per 400 like effortlessly. It's yeah. just as beautiful since I was light, everything just came together. And uh, yeah, that race I ran, it was, it was the f- inaugural race at uh, the Windsor track in yeah, beautiful uh, track,
0: beautiful track, beautiful
1: track. So first it was the first race They They did a dem- demonstration mile prior to the Pan American junior games. So my whole, the whole team was there watching all of the teams from all, all of the nations were watching. Plus a bunch of people that came out. So there had been like close to 7,000, 8,000 people watching. Jesus stands were packed. And, uh, I went through 1200, uh, three flat like just well three the third lap i was a three flat on the third lap and adam goucher was ahead uh, in front of everybody and i mowed him down i came i I caught him caught him with 150 to go and the only mistake i made in that race was i caught him and went behind
0: Mm, i killed my momentum
1: yeah in re in retrospect i should have just kept that momentum and went by because that that the way the mile works particularly is you really only have Two efforts, and you burn that first effort in the start, almost yep. always. So it's like you really only have one more kick. And my kick was to get to him, and I needed to sit on that. But instead, I slowed down, thinking I'd have another. But once I got behind him, he kicked with a hundred to go, and he just pulled away from me. He ran three fifty six, but I crossed three fifty seven, broke the Canadian record by a second. Uh, everyone went crazy. It's my first time, so my parents were there. Did a victory lap with the Canadian flag. Uh, it was cool, and then I got because of that. I think like I, I got named as the team captain for the race, and uh, yeah, like uh, it was it was a cool it was a cool race. It was a cool week.
0: Oh, I i, I you know what I remember that happening because I was always big on the Canadian on the message boards and everything like that. Um, so that three can so this coming up month with mild marathon, we're doing a race. We're doing we're gonna focus on the mile race. What kind of how would you describe racing a mile? Because every race is kind of tactically different. Obviously, with a marathon, we're always like, settle in, settle in, feel comfortable, feel smooth. You want to feel like you're holding back. But in my experience with the mile, it's like you get on the line and you just sprint <laughs> because I'm slow. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. What, what advice – also, my 1,500-meter PV is from that Victoria track. But anyway – I mean, sorry, that Windsor track. How would you – what it- advice would you give a miler?
1: What would I give a miler
0: and how well, to race a mile?
1: Okay. So there's a, like, so it all depends. Like, so on a tactical race, this is one of the reasons why I think I'm, I'm a decent cyclist is because one of the skills I learned from one of the skill skills that's been invaluable to me as uh, a cyclist is being able to make extremely difficult tactical decisions under physical duress, which is a mile. Like it's actually in a tactical race uh, and in a slow race, yeah. It's super tactical, but for what's going to happen uh, coming up for these guys, it's going to be a time trial. And yeah. I, I disagree that it's, it's, it's a sprint, but it's, it's like a, it's, this, dangerous it's a advice. subtle, yeah. yeah, it's a, it's dangerous advice, but it's like a subtle art of just like riding this red line. Like, because you can't, like, it's not, it's not a full sprint, but you're basically almost sprinting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And the way I'd always do it is, I would try. I'd run my first 400, like my first lap, uh, and I basically your first 100 meters is almost. I'd always treat as free. It yep. Doesn't count. You can you can go out pretty hard, and you're not going to pay the pay the. You price. got adrenaline. Even, you
0: got a little bit of a burn. Got
1: adrenaline. It's the next 100 that you have to kind of put the reins on. Otherwise, you can blow blow up. So you you go out hard in the first 100, then you just start floating and you float for the next lap. So if you're running for a 4 minute mile, I'm just going to use 4 minute mile cuz the the math is easy. I'm not saying everyone's going to be using this math, but you float that first through the first lap. And then when you get to that first lap mark, if you're running a 4 minute mile pace, that's 60 seconds. But technically, by the time you've hit that 400 mark, you actually haven't you're actually slowing down. You're yep. going slower than sub – you're going slow, slower than sub four-minute pace or four-minute pace because you probably ran your first 100 in 13, 14 seconds. Exactly. And, then your next one, and so your next one may be in 15, and then that, that next 200, you're, you've slowed down. Yep. So once you get to that lap after floating, you've kind of almost got to do a little switch where you make a, big, a bit of a push. And so I'd always do a bit of a push at that four-meter four mark just to accelerate the speed. And because you're, you're still not cooked yet. The key is holding that push all the way to 800. And then when you get to 800, that's where the work really happens. From eight to 12, 800 to 1,200 meters is the hardest lap of your race. Mm-hmm. It's like where you meet God. It's like where like, <laughs> you like, question your, your existence. It's where you, if you're doing it right from like 900 meters to 1400 meters you should think about stepping off the track almost every step yeah. just hating yourself but like also trying to maintain fluidity trying to relax trying to be calm and just think this is a 1200 meter race i just have to get to that third lap because once you make it to the third lap the last laps the lap, like anyone can get through the last lap and i was always a guy that if i saw the light at the end of the tunnel i could just i just go and like I'd forget how much I was hurting, and I'd actually dig into the pain if I was on a good day. Yeah. So really, it's that third lap that the race is made or lost. And I, uh, that would be my biggest focus on it. Finally, just try and flow you, that last 400. If you can maintain your form and you can stay smooth, despite the fact that everything's telling you that you should be falling apart and slowing down, you'll run fast the key in that last 400 is really uh, maintaining efficiency. If you can Mm -hmm. be smooth, be calm, try and imagine yourself like not clenching your face, but relaxing your face. And although everything in your body's screaming at you, just like being cool, being relaxed, being Zen, you'll go way faster.
0: Yeah. And that's, it's one of those things. So easy, easy said than done. And then you're in the moment, Ed, but it's, it's, it's all about being relaxed. Right. And, and managing it and, and, but man, I like to this day. I've run so many races, and one of the most d- uncomfortable races I've ever run is the mile. It's and it's just. I remember running. I ran like four oh six in Guelph, but I remember being <laughs> on the in, I remember being on the infield for like half an hour afterwards. My parents were like, "Are you? Are we gonna go to lunch now or what?" Yeah. <laughs> just lying in a in a heap because like oh, you I've thrown up after them. Those those sure the- that between twelve. I mean, sorry, that second, that third lap, like you were saying, that is absolutely the most vital lap and you can lose time in chunks if you don't remain focused and you don't remain committed to the, to the effort. But man, it's, it's a fun race. And I think it's it's It's, definitely, it's an important race for everybody to run at least once an all out mile. Um,
1: Oh, totally. And it, it really actually, I find, um, it makes the longer distances so much easier if you do it right. Like, that's why I want to get back into running uh, when I'm older and even a well, lot older when I'm done cycling. I want to get into Ironman particularly just nice. because I know I've ran so much faster than all these guys that, run, that, that are, are running really good times in, in the Ironman. Like, that speed, that, those efforts, they go so far and they recalibrate your perception of what fast is and ultimately uh, make a marathon, seem a, bit more, a marathon pace seem a bit more tolerable.
0: Yeah, and that's why we do speed work, right? It's, it's to make your body and your mind, you, you know, that 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 cruisy pace for longer stuff that much more manageable. How's your swimming?
1: My swimming's not bad. Nothing. No. A good wetsuit can't help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a good wetsuit basically does like a life jacket, and you just, you just yeah and you yeah yeah go forward from there. Oh man, how would you compare the discomfort of? I mean, it's it's probably you probably can't compare them. They're probably both awful. But like the discomfort of that third lap in the mile versus a long climb in the middle of of a bike race. Um, Do you you have specific tools that you click into mentally that, to help you overcome these challenges?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So for a mile, it's so much a mile, like so long climb and all the the, the situations are so uh, bike racing is so variable. So like if you're doing a full gas climb uh, where the best rider, the best, like Team Ineos, which is from the Team Sky, is riding breakneck pace for Chris Froome, and it's a mountaintop finish, and it's a 20K mountaintop. In that instance, it's so much like a marathon. It's all about just breaking things down one kilometer at a time, not getting overwhelmed by the the distance, the, the, the distances in front of you, not thinking about the distances in front of you, but just really um, reducing it and so what? While doing that, that that situation is, I'll, I'll literally just celebrate every kilometer. I know if, if I know it's a twenty kilometer race, like twenty kilometer climb. When I'm on my best days and I'm mentally capable of doing this, what I'll I'll just say, your goal is to make it to 19k. And then once I get to 19k, I like literally, like not literally, but figuratively, I pat myself in the back. And then I go, okay, just make it to 18k. And I, I literally just celebrate each k that I survive further. Um, but in in many instances in client in bike racing, it's not consistent. And it's, it's one thing that makes it, I find more um, mentally demanding is that there's a lot of bluffing guys will go so much harder than they can sustain for the, that, that full effort, that full effort of the climb, but they don't want to have you in their slipstream. So uh, they try and make the effort to get away so that you're not sitting on them. And that, that bluffing really messes with you because you're just, constantly going well over this red line and it's actually where miling really plays to my advantage because i have built up so many years of just working in that anaerobic space that a lot of cyclists haven't it's the advantage i have so i, I love it when the, I, I much prefer a pace on a climb that's sporadic and all over the place um but yeah compared to a mile uh yeah on those long climbs they're they're it's so different it's like one's just so explosive and one's so so diesel, uh, yeah. When I was a kid, I much would have would have much rather the explosivity because I could wrap my ha- head around a four minute effort. Yeah. I couldn't wrap my head around uh, a, a two hour effort on, in the marathon. But now, uh, uh, having aged, I like the low lo- the long slow burn.
0: Yeah, it's something I really appreciate about, about cycling in general. Is that you can ride that slow burn for a lot longer than 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 running. You can. And yeah, just the tactics of cycling are so much, there's so much going on there. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, it's having that instinctual background from racing and knowing. And-
1: is one thing that really, really messed with me coming into cycling particularly was uh, when I first came into running, when guys would attack, I just thought they would sustain that for the rest of the race. And so uh, I'd see them go away and be like, I can't, I can't maintain that. And so I'd lose races. And 70 kilometers because, to go. Yeah. yeah, I'd lose races because in my mind, you're so calibrated as a runner to think that this pace is where I'm staying for the rest of the race. And if you, you see if you saw a guy kick like that in a running race, you'd think goodbye, that guy's winning. Whereas you come around a corner and you'll see, you'd see, you see this guy dying or there'd be descent and he'd just be recovering. He'd be gone, but yeah. still not, not pedaling, not, not expending energy. So it was real. Like it, it did take a while for me to adapt that mentally.
0: Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, just endurance sports in general. I love how I love how much of it just it's just on you, man. It's just it's mentally and physically being prepared to battle on the day. Totally. Yeah, totally. man. Right on. Well, I think with that, I really appreciate taking the taking the time to chat about running. Uh, I think people will really get a lot of benefit from your your mile advice. Being, are you still the Canadian junior record holder in the mile? Still got it, man. Nice. Fifteen
1: years now. Fifteen years now.
0: Good for you, man. You put that. <laughs> first and foremost i was i was looking at your wikipedia page and it had like your uh and it had all all this cycling i was like come on i want some of these there's some pretty legit running credentials in there yeah they're okay maybe you have to go into wikipedia and, and do an edit on that
1: the records the records too are pretty safe because the mile is becoming less and less popular with the focus now on qualifying times miles happening far less i'm just it's getting safer and safer each year man
0: that's that's a good point. Because Canadian kids don't run the mile anyway. Like, cause high school is all the fifteen hundred, no. right? So it, like it's like it's like you when you got screwed over that hair at, at the Vancouver race. Like the, the mile opportunities are pretty few and far between. Exactly. Sweet man, we'll hold on to that, and uh, you know I will go go talk trash <laughs> to some kids and get in their heads.
1: Exactly. You'll never <laughs> make it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Um, happy that you're, you know, you're back on the bike riding after that scary injury. Um, actually, I think before we go, we have to talk about Mile to Marathon a little bit because um, that's something you created, something that you and Dylan helped create. Talk us about the inception of Mile to Marathon. And you, you mentioned before that Ellie Ellie played a big part in that.
1: Yeah, no, so as you're, as you're
0: injured, as you're working in the run shop in Ottawa, as you're trying to find your way through your athletic career, mild marathon grows out of this.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was, I was entertaining the idea of becoming a, um, an NCAA coach. So I wanted to build credentials. I was thinking about, uh, I was working, I coached at a high school at my high school for a bit. I did some assistant coach work with, uh, university of Ottawa. Uh, but, uh, I was also not making any money because I was managing a running shoe store making like $30,000 a year. And I, uh, came Ellie, Ellie brought up the idea well, why don't you coach pilot? I was like, That's not a bad idea. And then she managed to connect me with two of her colleagues who were running with her at the time. Uh, and Andrew, Le- 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 Leocous, who's still with modern marathon, who's uh, client number one. And, <laughs> uh, yeah we uh yeah we uh, kind of snowballed from there like it was it was uh it was really nice so the first practice we had uh Jesse and and Andy come out and uh uh start doing drills and i think they really uh liked the fact that i was doing drills doing stuff that was more focused on technique cuz they'd read they they're pretty big running nerds and they liked reading runners world or whatever magazine was uh, out there Canadian running and uh all those uh, outlets were giving them advice on what they should do in terms of their training regime or what they should do with diet, but they never had someone uh, who could explain the feel of running, who could uh, give them an idea of how they should actually run. And particularly coming from the Lions track background, I just spent so many years coaching cra- track camp. I, had, I spent so many years watching sprinters and, 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 and focusing on, on technique and then going to Michigan and watching Nate and Nick and just talking out for hours at end about how to improve technique, how to improve, improve stride economy, how to feel a race, how to feel pace. Um, I, I, I was able to – things that I felt like were just common knowledge because I'd spent so many years developing
0: Yeah, uh,
1: weren't. And I quickly realized this with these guys who were you know proficient runners who'd spent a lot of time reading about running. They didn't have the – a PhD in running that I, I effectively got, and uh, it, it for the next two years I was coaching, and it took me a while to start realizing that I just need to start saying the things that were obvious to me because they're not obvious to a lot of people who are getting into running. Uh, a lot of people, and a lot of our clients now with Mountain Marathon, and a lot, of the, a lot of the clients that I've coached in the past, they love running, but they haven't had that same the, the same years of experience of just living and breathing and like i said having your entire identity attached to running so they don't know that you know maybe you need to take a day easier after a hard session or yeah. and so initially i felt so bad about charging people about uh, charging people to to glean this information that i thought was just basic knowledge yeah oh yeah but, take it
0: for granted for sure
1: yeah after about a year two years i started like no this is the this is the most important stuff. Mm-hmm. like and like doing t- treating teaching people a's and b's is a super important and uh yeah we, i started the the group just started building got up to about 15 16 people even in some since 20 and then that's when i connected with dylan he just finished the olympics was in ottawa because his wife francine was going to school and uh i said man i i, I, I cannot even offload some clients i got one right here ellie my wife i was coaching her at the time it was terrible for a relationship yeah and so i uh <laughs> I I, I pawned Ellie off to, to Dylan and that was his first client. And, uh, yeah, he started taking it it, having it just take off. He started building up his client base. Then with cycling becoming so important to me and with, um, the demand of the sport becoming so much greater, I started having to wean my clients down. Uh, and Dylan moved off to, to Vancouver because, uh, uh of francine's work and because he was keen to get out there as well and that's where he connected with you and you guys just took took the business to the next level and it was just so fun to watch for me for for me from afar seeing it seeing something like that that i like i was a part of grow so significantly um, until it got to a point where ellie and i started thinking about where we wanted to what we wanted to do after my career uh, where I want to go. And I, I, really believe that I want to be a coach. I really, I still love coaching people. I still love talking about the sport, still love running. Uh, I want to coach when I'm done. And we thought, how can we get back involved in this business and, and be a part of it in a greater way? And uh, that's why, uh, we've been involved a lot more in the last two years, year and a half. And it's been just super fun. It's, it's so cool to see where it's going. And, uh, just to think of the potential for it in the years to come.
0: Oh, yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for creating the space. And like you're saying, yeah, it's, 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 we did take for granted sometimes the knowledge we have and just being able to transfer that and take that elite kind of perspective and, and, and take it to like every runner. And it has been fun to, to have it grow. And it has been really cool to have Ellie come in circling back in and being more involved in the day to day. And where it's always, obviously, is a, a place for you when, when you get back. And, but yeah, so that's cool. And so thank you for creating this thing that we're all part of now. And it's been a huge part of our lives and it's, it's been oh, awesome to
1: you, man. You've done, you've done some significant legwork and bring it to where it's been. It is now. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's nice. It's really nice to be part of
0: the hell of a team, man. Hell of a team. Sweet. We'll take a mild marathon in getting going there soon.
1: <laughs> Actually, we are start. We, we've, there's a run club starting up in uh, Girona, Spain right now. And we're thinking that, uh, this could be a good destination for future travel, M-to-M travel camps.
0: Train camps, man. Training camps. All Girona. We'll yeah. see you there. 20, yeah. 2021. Love it. All right, Woodsy. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to chat today. And uh, yeah, best of luck as you, as you get back on the bike. Uh, raising a little Max. Uh, it's Max, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. You nailed it. You nailed it. All right. And uh, yeah, this, so take care and let's, uh, let's keep on rolling, man. Thanks, Rob. You too, man. Cheers, buddy. Bye now. I'm going to pause this.